Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome to How I Quit Alcohol and today in the studio I'm with one of my very good friends. Her name is Lucy Turner but in her previous life uh, she was known as Mel Bampton, also Mel in the Morning on Triple J and um, a very very fun party girl. <laughs> I know Thank this. you for putting that so nicely, Danny. I appreciate that. <laughs> I know this because I think the last time you partied was with me. <laughs> or one well, of. I was actually looking, I wanted to look up the date before we came on, but I know it was sometime in August. So mm. we're coming up almost to my ninth year anniversary wow. since I last had any drop of alcohol. Like I'm talking even in any kind of herbal medicine, anything. Wow, that's mm. so amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, you were a, a, a great inspiration for us because we've known you for so long and known you previously. Like I said, we've partied together. And I always had you as this sort of little beacon that I would look towards, especially when I felt really crap on a Sunday. <laughs> and I'd often see you on, on the beach on a Monday looking gorgeous and all yoga-ish. And I'd think, that's that's where I want to be. But I'd sort of see you and I'd have my tail between my legs and give you this big <laughs> the rundown of how, you know, I'm, I really want to give up. <laughs> but it was so wonderful when I'd see you in those spaces because then that was the inspiration for me to keep going. <laughs> like the reminder that you'd actually have your days. Like just not having days. Like I don't, I couldn't even count how many days in my life that I lost because mm. I was so hungover. And sometimes you're, you know, you're not so hungover and you can leave the house, but other mm. days you're so hungover, you can't go anywhere. Some days you're so hungover, you can't even get out of bed unless it's to go to the toilet to hug the porcelain. That's it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. I know that feeling. <laughs> well, <laughs> so a reminder is good. Yeah, and I'm the same. Some of my friends that drink a lot now, I'm like, that's good. It's a good reminder when I see them. 
like, yes, that's why I'm not doing that anymore. But yeah, tell me about your relationship with alcohol. Well, when I was actually driving over here to do this, I was thinking, trying to think back to what, like if I could remember what my first ever drink of alcohol would have been. Mm. And the memory that came to me, I don't know whether this was the first or not, but the memory that came to me was being, I think, about 13 years old. And I was living at home still then, only just. I left home very early. And my mom and dad kept these little bottles of liqueurs, like all mm-hmm. Midori, like, you know, mm-hmm. iridescent orange and fluorescent <laughs> green. And, and then I remember just one day deciding that I was going to drink the orange one. And I drank that and then replaced it with Fanta. Oh, yeah. And I Smart. actually only told my mum, I reckon about two years ago, and that would have been <laughs> like 32 years ago that oh I did God. that. And that was my very first ever drink of alcohol and I don't know what spurred that on but I already must have been feeling like okay that this is a path that I want to follow this is what adults do like Mm. I'm ready to grow up and this Mm. was a sign of growing up for me Mm. and I actually see that all around all the time that unfortunately in Australian culture Mm. that alcohol is considered part of the coming of age Mm. and for me as someone who's been sober now for fuck nearly a decade um that's that's something that I'd really love to be part of changing is this idea for young people that to be a grown-up, you have to get shit-faced, that you have to drink. Mm, absolutely. That was definitely part of our culture, like um, with my friends growing up. I think we felt that we were, we were grown-ups if we were drinking and it would be a great thing if we could change that. There's also something else to it though, I think, which is this feeling like when you're a teenager and you feel like – everything just doesn't seem quite right to you. Like the the world or the thoughts that you're being told by people in your life who are your authority people and it doesn't quite add up to you as a teenager. You're feeling this kind of rebellion rising within you. You want to question everything and everything that you're being told is so boring or so mundane. It doesn't quite fit the teenage brain. Mm. And instead of being really well guided through that time, we end up finding things like drugs and alcohol because alters the reality it takes us to a place where we feel all of a sudden like oh hang on here's a fit this is what feels more right to me which is this really colorful rich altered reality than this really boring structured road that the authoritarian figures in my life are trying to pave for me Mm. and so and particularly if that's tied in like with most teenagers with any kind of insecurity and this Mm. is where you can find a place to be bold and to be loud and to dance terribly but you think you're you know just killing it and all of those things it it kind of feeds a a gap or fills a gap of Mm. insecurity that's not being taken care of in other aspects of our society Mm. and I think also too at that age you're starting to maybe let go of some of the hobbies and things you enjoyed too when you were younger I know with me we had horses and at around that time, I started to lose a bit of interest in the horses because I wanted to go and party with my friends on the weekend. So the horses, you know, ended up over here. My dad ended up selling our horses. I think we had 15 or something at one point. And dad sold them all because I just wasn't really interested anymore. But if, maybe if I wish in hindsight, well, you've got to go down your path anyway. But a friend who's going to be on the podcast, uh, he's, a, he's a psychologist, works with drug and alcohol, saying that part of the recovery process is to tap back into those things that we enjoyed when we were younger because you start to, as you get older you know you let go of those things that we enjoyed when we were younger I think that's such a beautiful process to oh, it's almost like picking up where you left off mm. but with all of this wisdom in between and mm. to get into that at a level that you, you just 
you wouldn't when you're a child. With mm. child, it would be so much more play and glee. But to be able to come back into those things as an adult, and it's interesting that you say that because there's I'm actually feel like now that you've mentioned it, in a bit of a process with that even now, like mm. finally kind of coming back to tap in. That's a lot about being sober, but it's also a lot about life changing. You know, more mm. time opening up with the children getting a little bit older and all of these kinds of things but have been drawn very naturally back to things like painting and drawing even though I haven't picked up a paintbrush or a pencil yet it's just a thought (laughs) thought. at this stage but how I'm feeling like these Mm. things from my childhood that I loved are are definitely rekindling Mm. because the thing with drinking as well is that it fills so much space Mm. like it fills so much of your life like I've never I've really refrained from looking back at the quantity of time that it's consumed mm. because it's just not necessary. And also it kind of speeds up time in a way as well. So when you're on a big night out, you seem to cram in like a hundred times more things than you possibly <laughs> could if you mm. weren't drinking. Mm. So I guess it's there's a bit of an elasticity in that timeline anyway. But with the whole process of that from that first drink mm. to the last drink of the evening, like so much obviously happens in then, but so much of it's lost because mm. a lot of it you don't, even remember Mm. so that's a big time consuming process but that can take like 12 hours sometimes 15 hours or longer particularly if you're propped up by other substances you just Mm. keep going and going and then it's all the next day and potentially even the day after that Mm. I've just remembered the very last hangover that I ever had and I was such a hangover person my husband, who was the person in his group like I was in mine, like the biggest trash bag, the one who drank the most, consumed the most substances, went the hardest, always the one who ended up passing out or had the stories or would take everybody on the wildest, most dangerous adventures. And uh, But he never, ever had a hangover, like wow. ever in mm. his whole life. Mm, like just like that. He's just, what? Like I was just hung over all the time. Like I was either drunk or hung over or I was at work in between, generally hung over. But so many days that I couldn't go to work and with such a public job, like, Mm. you know, a national profile and you're broadcasting to a million people a week and you can't show up to work because you're too hung over. It's not very inconspicuous. But that amount of time that is lost in that whole affair, you know, mm. and that whole process of, of drinking. It's like you don't have time really for many other hobbies. You do yeah. your job and then you have your party time and then you have your hungover time. And then you're back to your job. And then you're back to your job. It's funny you were saying the other day how you would you would call in to Triple J sick, like say, you know, I'm too hungover. I was partying with Metallica or whatever last night. And they're like, oh, good. You know, go. <laughs> Fine, Pharrell Williams, that was a shocker. Yeah, Pharrell Williams, that was it. You know, like, and it was expected, encouraged, you know, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big thing, you know, it was. I don't think I ever actually called in and told them that I was off because I was hungover, but it was, it was also part of building the cool of Mm. the profile, which seems ridiculous now. And I'm sure that even everybody that I worked with at that time would be like, God, did we ever really think that that was super cool? But you know, could my... you have done it sober though? Do you think you could have had that same connection with some of the those big stars that you would hang out with? That would have been hard. Yeah, because it? the connection in terms of a professional sense already happened before that. The any any sort of big nights out with people like um, Pharrell Williams, or I was just thinking of another really big night. I can't believe I've forgotten his name, Jack Black. 
so with Jack Black and these these big nights that would happen with particular people, the interviews had happened first. So the professional component was already done and that was done in a sober state because that was my job. It's just that the opportunities then arose because people were in town, they were sort of in the same headspace, going out, uh, adventuring through a new city, meeting new people and it all went with it. All the substances and the alcohol just went with that. So absolutely it was not necessary to the actual job but it was, I guess part of even building the stories of my own internal novel of my life Mm. you know that was all part of it too oh great of course I'm going to do that you never thought twice but I wonder too if some of these bands or people Jack Black or whatever if they were not if they were if they were drinking if they were partying if you said oh do you want to catch up later tonight for a cup of tea they'd be like that would "Uh, be weird That would be totally weird. <laughs> it almost feels a bit creepy, which yeah. is funny, isn't it? And it was never really even planned. It would just roll from one thing to another, particularly if mm. interviews were happening at gigs and or if an interview had happened first in the day. And then, of course, you go to their show or go to their gig so you can adequately sort of be connected and talk about that on the program the next day. And uh, so the big nights would just flow on from there. It was all just part and parcel. But I realised I lost my train of thought before I was talking about uh, the very last time that I ever drank, my hung- hangover was two weeks in oh, length. What? And it was a massive night on tequila and I was out with lots of friends and even out with all my kids. And my friends had loved tequila so much that they'd actually moved to Mexico and they were back from Mexico on a holiday back here to Australia. And, of course, we were all drinking tequila and that you know two too many three four five too many tequilas and then getting in the car my husband was driving of course I was not driving and only going a couple of hundred meters down the road in the car and having to wind the window down three kids in the back and I'm vomiting out the car window and one of those incredible low moments of which there are so many in reflection if you're a parent who drinks and Mm. then I I we had something planned for the next day. We were all supposed to be doing family yoga. It was like the first day of the school holidays and I'd booked it in for us all to go and connect. We're a blended family. So all of these things when we were all together to do as a family was so precious and there was no way I could get out of bed Mm. and I vomited all of that day. And there was actually this really distinctive moment. I remember when my husband came to the bedroom door that morning before we were supposed to be going to do this kids yoga or family yoga class together and he had all the kids already and I kept saying, yeah, 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 I'm getting there. And then a run and vomit and I'm still getting there, I'm coming, yeah. And him coming to the door with the kids already and me saying, I can't, I can't do it, I can't mm. go. And he's the least judgmental person, my husband, but I just remember the look on his face where he was so disappointed and mm. all of the kids were so disappointed And that was just like a knife in my heart. I get all teary just thinking about it now. And I couldn't get out of bed for 14 days. Wow. And I was just so, my body was done. Mm. My body was so done. Mm. And I mean, I'm scrawny, you know, Mm. there's not a lot to me. And I had, I don't even know, like if, oh my God, imagine if we measured the literage. Oh my God, that just makes me gag a little just thinking about it. But I, it was 14 days, I could finally get out of bed and we were going on a family road trip. And 
So I managed to get up and I was feeling much better by then, but still shaky. And you didn't shaky. drink, obviously, in that 14 days. Didn't drink, yeah. but that night, the first night of the road trip, we went to the pub to get a counter meal on the road on the way on this road trip. And I ordered a beer, like, I'm good now. Okay, I'm back. And I had one mouthful and had to run to the toilet and throw up. Oh, wow. And I tried again the next day. And then the next day after that, same, just one mouthful. And then vomiting instantly before it's even gone down into my belly, before it's even hit my organs. Well, some people listening to that will to this will think, "Are oh, you a bitch?" I know, totally. <laughs> like, oh my god! I, that's a dream for some people if it's like taken out of your hands. It was absolutely, it, it, and that's what people. So many people ask me. Have asked me over the last nine years, particularly music industry friends who were a big part of that life with me and are trying to find their way out. How did you? get out and it's like I didn't have any choice there was no willpower involved obviously over time that changed because as my body repaired I'm sure I could have you know half a glass of wine or something now but there is no desire whatsoever in me Mm. I'm sure I could get that down without throwing up but that was the case for me then and I realized that my body was done and I had hit other times like that previously where I'd had to stop for a couple of weeks or a couple of months here and there where I could feel things starting to fail within my body. But this was the most significant time. And I just knew that that was it, that mm. I was done. Mm. And it was obviously supported by a psychological um, headspace behind that, where I really knew that, that I was done and I needed to be done for my kids. And mm. I needed to obviously be done for me. Yeah. Huge change too. Like so, to go through that, and then also you left that other world behind, the Triple J, and now you're a yoga therapist and an amazing yoga teacher, and now you actually help people too that are recovering. Yeah, I do do a lot of that, and it's funny over the years because I took such a lateral step. Like I'd left, I'd already left Triple J, and I there was still a few years in between <clears throat> leaving Triple J and sobriety. Mm. And I was the national media manager for Soundwave Festival then, so I was still touring a lot and still involved in that. And then there just came that time, which was what we just discussed about that final big night, big night on the tequila and being hungover and all of that sort of stuff. And I had struggled a lot with this big sidestep, this big lateral step that I'd taken, leaving Triple J, I left where I live, I moved up to the Northern Rivers, my husband and I came together. We brought together our, our um, family of five children at that time. We were still drinking together, even smoking still here and there, socially smoking. So weird to think about it now mm. because he's also a yoga teacher. Yeah. And then my life, I guess I felt I also changed my name too, I, mm. which was purely me getting married to my husband deciding I would take on his last name and then last name. And then I was going to be Mel Turner, which was the worst name in the world. So I reverted back to Lissy, which was my childhood name, which is what my family still had called me. So it was like such an extreme separation from of the two lives. And I did struggle a lot with that. Mm. But then as I became a yoga therapist, so I was a yoga teacher first, and then you become a yoga therapist. Then as I started to just by chance work more and more in the field of people who were in addiction recovery, I started to feel like my two lives sort of weaving back together again Mm, where mm. I could really understand that space. So I started to teach out at a live-in 
rehab center, drug and alcohol. Well, it's an addiction center. It's not just for drugs and alcohol. It's for any kind of really addictive pattern that's consumed the person, um, which Paul Kelly made very famous in one of his songs, The Buttery. And I was really comfortable in that space. These people were, even though they were from all walks of life, I could really connect and relate. And Mm. for them to have someone coming in to teach yoga and meditation who could connect with them rather than being like, very distant or very disconnected from that life it worked really beautifully symbiotically for for both of us Mm. so then I started to do just because what happens in the yoga therapy space you work with somebody one person in a particular avenue and they're an amazing student and they come out Mm. so I started to run this program which is a 21 day program called dissolving patterns and it is for any kind of addiction um, pattern space and so it supports people day to day across 21 days. Mm. And that's what it's all like. It's all about like coming out is all about how do you find a positive pattern that's stronger than the negative one? Mm. That's the most important thing. The positive mm. pattern you need to replace. So you don't yeah. just remove and then you're just left with this gigantic void, like what yeah. drinking leaves. Mm. You've got to fill that gigantic void with something. Yeah. And yoga is one of those things for some people that's so vast that it can fill that space a hundredfold. Yeah. There's a tool in every direction Yeah, for when you need support to keep lifting up and going forwards. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I've found that with every person that I've interviewed so far and people that I know, the successful ones have replaced. They've put in something else and the ones that, that weren't so successful didn't fill the void and so they found boredom and things like that. I think there's a large spiritual component, physical and spiritual component that needs to go in um, as part of that process of rebuilding yourself, your self-esteem, yourself physically. In case I forget to mention it later, if with the dissolving patterns, if people are around the Northern Rivers area, they could jump. What's your website? It's so the details for that are up on the website at the moment, which is just theyogashack.com.au or yep. lissyturner.com. Yep. So you can find it on either of those. But we are looking because of obviously how the world has gone in the last sort of four or five months and there's been a lot of requests on how we can do this online. Mm. In person is obviously the number one. Yep. But it's about whatever's available at that moment that's the that's the lifeline that you attach on to so, so zoom or something like if that. we can do it via zoom which is what we'll be looking at for the october november oh, great. Uh, course yeah and you know this course just sort of was born very naturally from within i didn't sit down and go okay what are we going to do with this this was just born and this is how from a therapy perspective is the best way to move forwards in this particular space and it has been, I've run four or five of them now. I only run two a year because they've really, they're quite intensive for me as well as a therapist. And they are full like that. Mm. And it just, when I ran the first one and it was full within the first week, just seeing the incredible need, people just free falling and there's no need to free fall. We just need to, okay, who's who's out there, whose hand that you can grab? And like you with this podcast, this is a hand that people can grab to not be alone Mm. because you can feel really lonely when Mm. you decide to walk in the beginning, only in the beginning Mm. when you decide that you're going to be sober, particularly if your life is really uh, uh, intricately woven in with drinking. Yeah. I would say ours was definitely a lot of our, basically all of our socializing was based around drinking and Ash's work and my, you know, um, if we were on tour with him or whatever, but it was very woven in. 
that was definitely a big thing, a big change to how did you navigate that one? Uh, that was pretty, I mean, again, because I didn't have a choice. So I think that was where I got to be out of a lot of the pressure in the beginning. For mm. me, the pressure came a little bit later when like I had new friends coming in or enough time had passed for people to forget that that's how I ended up being sober in the first place that I'd actually gotten really sick. Or uh, people like me going, come and- on, Missy, <laughs> just have one. What's wrong with you? Yes, definitely people like you who... But, you know, again, like I, like I said before, though, seeing you then the next day and where you were feeling so, like, bummed about feeling like rubbish was, I mean, I didn't, I hated seeing all my friends in that space, but it was not only a good reminder for me, but I also seeing the reminder for you over and over again. And you kind of need to go through that sometimes mm. 10 times, 20 times, 100 times, 500 times. Mm. You need to go through that space, that sorry space before any of us have suffered enough to go, that's it, I'm done. But in terms of that support space, it is, and I think it's good to be aware of this. If you're deciding that you are going to go sober and you're the only one in your group, it is a challenge. There's no doubt about that Mm. because things are shifting and changing and people do, they can feel resistant to inviting you to something where they know their intention is to get smashed. They're, particularly if they're already at a place where they know they're starting to become disturbed by it themselves, in yeah. themselves. Yeah. And to have somebody there who's already sober, it makes it can make people feel uncomfortable with the decisions that they're making. So it's it's been a long process of accepting that. And but and in the beginning I definitely felt like when my friends including you, were saying, come on, just have a drink, just one, just have a drink and to pull me into that sort of swing of the momentum of a particular evening, I could be hurt by that. Like I would feel like my friends didn't really care about my health or supporting me on the decision to go down this path to be a better mum or a better person just for me and because I was subpar. As a mother, I was subpar. Even as a radio broadcaster, even though I did that very well, I still, when there's alcohol involved all the time or drugs involved all the time or any other distraction to our good health, of course we're not at our fullest potential. We are Mm. going to be subpar. Mm. So there was a little bit of hurt around that space in the beginning, but over time what's happened is that all of this new stuff blossoms and germinates. That's beyond anything that you ever thought was possible. Like the friendships, the quality of the friendships, the Mm. quality of the interactions and the relationships with people in your life, Mm. people that you know already, people that you don't know, like how you're able to interact so much more deeply and so much more openly and, and from this, like you just... There's so I love people so much more than same. I did before. I know, same. There's so much less cynicism around. <laughs> so weird. Although I still have a bit of that because human beings, come on, sometimes <laughs> we do some pretty weird things. But there's so much, there's so much more connection that develops. And now, when I look at the caliber of the people in my life, not that the caliber was low before, but it's just, it's just different. Now the the caliber is still high, but there's so many sober people in my life now. The vast majority of my, of people in my life now would be people on a similar path. And along the way, like you, it's been people from my past where we were fun times trash bag buddies together, mm. where we've joined the past together. 
Yeah. And now we're doing this part of our life together. Yeah. And we can still we still often look back, particularly on that last night we spent together. <laughs> the <laughs> most most un Tuesday of Tuesdays, yes. as it became known as. Yeah, that was that, that <laughs> was like urban legend, that stuff. But um, you know, we can still laugh about that and like let's not like there's plenty of fun times have been had. Yeah being a trash bag too but the the times now are so much more like we've done that yeah too like Tierney was saying my friend was saying you know we've been there done that it's it gets old after a while anyway so now it's so much more it's so rich much more richer it's kind of like okay now I'm ready to get on with my life even though so mm. much was able to be achieved before mm. there's definitely a moment that comes where it's like okay now I'm ready to, to get on with everything and have all of that time that was drinking time, which was an enormous quantity of time to pour into every other aspect mm. of my life. And But it's funny what you're saying then about looking back and having a laugh about it. I've actually only been able to do that really recently. For probably the first seven years of being sober, I could not look back on my drinking life with any kind of affection. Mm. I couldn't look back on myself with any kind of affection. And it took me a long time to come to this place, first and foremost, of acceptance that my path had just led me there. That was the course of my own life as a really young person. And all of a sudden I was on that path and I didn't know, but I didn't even know how to adult in any other way. Mm. Drinking was the thing that you did. Mm. That's what everybody did, which is interesting because my parents don't really drink, but it's mm. where I found my place. In my family growing up, I didn't find my place. Yeah. I felt out of place. But when I found my drinking family mm. and my drug taking family, I found my place. So there was all of this emotional connection in that as well. And before mm. you know it, you're just on a path and everybody around you is doing the same thing. Mm. But then during the course of that, I also had children. My first two children were born when I was still drinking and drinking really heavily in a very highly functioning alcoholic, which is the worst kind to be because you just can mm. get on with shit. Mm. So you're still earning good money, still have a great job, still mm. got a house over your head and a great house. You can buy good food, you can buy good clothes. So there's not enough to, you know, you haven't hit the rock bottom in terms of all of those areas. You haven't suffered enough to come off the path. But then over time with my children, my children were the thing that they, that was my suffering space mm. where I was making such poor decisions around being with them and around being an amazing mum that that was the thing that really broke me. Like psychologically in the end, they were my motivating springboard. Yeah. I think that's most mums find that. Oh, most and dads as well but I've uh, the more I speak to people I find that that's the thing for a lot of mums mine was you know like I said in a, a blog that I did right at the start of this um, whole thing it was you know not remembering putting the kids to bed or like waking up and we're like fuck you know run down to the room and check they're in there and okay their toothbrushes are out so I brush their teeth and all those little things that you don't Oh you my know? God, it's so bad. Oh, it's it? so hard. It's and so hard. And, you know, the memories as well, when you look back, my eldest, who's 23 now and is amazing, um, in spite of the mother that raised her, even though we were so close, and there was so much love there, like the shambolic state of her childhood mm-hmm. in this high-functioning alcoholism. With her, in her life looking back over these memories 
that would come like, oh, yeah, I had this big night out with such and such or I spent three days on this cruise with blah, blah, blah or whatever. And then always the next question was, is in my mind, where was my daughter? Hmm. Where was my daughter? Where was she? Hmm. How many like nights of her life was she being babysat, looked after by family or by good friends or whatever so I could quote unquote work Mm. because that was all part of my job Mm. so every time a good memory like this fun times memory would rise like we were just talking about instantly it came with this horrifying question where was my daughter Mm. like memory after memory after memory after memory yeah how many nights was I away from her so I could work which was really just extended drinking time yeah. But justified, well, I've got to go to these gigs. I've got to do this. I've got to be with this person. I've got to get to know that person. I'm writing a story on this. I'm writing a book on this, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so looking back was very, very difficult for me for a long time because it was so tied up with my mother heart. Mm. And then I just realized that I just had to, I had to find a place to come to this place of acceptance. And then slowly, like as my as my kids have grown into the beautiful beings that they are, I've been able to also come to a place of great affection. But there was this crossroad moments, which is really where the sobriety was. It was firm. It was going to be my firm direction forwards, which was where my eldest wasn't going into a good space where all of my decisions I could see starting, my bad decisions were starting to manifest in her life, in her teen years and what she was experiencing in what was happening to her. And I realized that in staying with drinking and staying with drug taking, that I wasn't enough for what was required for her. Mm. So that was the huge kick in the ass yeah. where it was like, you have to fucking stop. Yeah. You have to pull your shit together because if you don't, she's going down. Yeah. So that was like, that was the moment for me, like in the psychology. So my body was really helping me, helping me out. But the psychology was, you have to be more. So that was all aspects of life. You have to be more. Do you think you would have done it if you didn't have the, the physical component stopping you from... It's hard to say because I was so sick with drinking anyway. Like I was so hungover so many times. Mm. And the last few times as well that I took drugs, like I overdosed the last couple of times as well. And, you know, had moments of being hospitalized. And, you know, mm. this was all... The, the drugs were completely separate to my kids they never obviously saw or knew any of that. Um, but there was these times of going, like knowing that I'm on the way to the hospital or I'm, I'm in an ambulance or whatever, and being aware enough to go, my daughter's being dropped home at 2 p.m. today. It's like 6 in the morning or whatever right now. My daughter's being dropped home at 2 p.m., so I have to have my, potentially have my stomach pumped and whatever else has to happen to save me before 2 p.m. and I have to be back at home so she doesn't know. So there was enough of these really big things happening where I think that I would have. Like that, that was the word, like what I, that story that I just shared, that was the end for me. Almost the end. There might have also been the most un-Tuesday of Tuesdays, but that was a complete anomaly. <laughs> yeah. But that was the real last for me of yeah. drugs. That The drugs went well before the alcohol went. The alcohols, because it's so normalized, it's the hardest one I found to give up. 
So in terms of would would I have given up regardless, I do think so because there was enough. Like Mm. I was at the point where it was enough. And what was happening in terms of the psychology of my mother space, my mother heart, was becoming so strong Mm. that I do think that would have overridden everything. That's a real struggle for a lot of mums too. And you've, like you say, you've got the mother heart that's pulling on you, you know, to be there and present for these little beings that you're trying to, you know, raise. But then the other part of you just wants to fucking forget it all and just party and be young again, or you think that you're young again or not have all, all these pressures. And it's this, you know, you find it's just very hard for the two to exist together. And you realise, I think, how unsupported socially or from a societal perspective that space also is that it's mm. it's completely fine as a mother to drink and from a society perspective and this is without any judgment to anybody because we've all been swept up in the story of that but that's not the reality it's mm. it is rubbish like alcohol is essentially totally shit Mm-hmm. For all the great times that it's it can propagate, but it's filling a space of being able to have a good time because of something that's lacking within inside of us. Mm-hmm. But the more the more that sobriety, like this idea of like alcohol being just ridiculous and rubbish, is out there. It's just like, nah, let's kick that to the curb. How did we ever fall into that mentality that that was like a great thing? It almost feels like we were just brainwashed somewhere along the way. Totally. Like- and and I never thought I would say that because, mm. I mean, I was the hardcore poster child, pin-up girl for drinking. Mm. And I remember friends of mine saying to me once, in Brisbane, we were all out on the street after a big night at the Normanby Hotel. This is going way, way back. And one of my friends saying, you are like an advertisement for drinking. Like you are like the funnest pissed person in the world. Yeah. And I always came up with those great plans. Yeah. Like we're going swimming at yeah. night off the rocks in Bondi. Like where we'd never jump off and swim in the daytime sober, but mm. we'll do it at nighttime when we've been drinking. Mm. And he was like, you're like an ad for drinking. And I would like to see much more ads out there for not drinking and actually going, how do we tap into all the spaces that alcohol is fulfilling without the booze? Yeah. And that can take some time. It does take a while, but I think you get there eventually. Like I would have just as much fun, if not more fun. I probably don't do as many crazy things. (laughs) (laughs) Or just shit talking. Like I definitely miss all the shit talking. That's one thing that I really... Oh, I hate the shit talking. (laughs) (laughs) You hate it when you're sober. Yeah. But when you're drinking, like when you're sober and you go somewhere, like go to a party, the shit talking is the worst. (laughs) Like it doesn't even make any sense. But you know from having been there that when you've had a few drinks, under your belt the shit talking makes complete sense mm-hmm. and you feel like you're nailing all of the answers to the greatest questions in the universe <laughs> if only we could just record ourselves you know and hear it back later and just be like oh my god but it's really about just it's like almost we have to like unwire mm. the wiring that's been hardwired in the brain we need to unwire that first and then we rewire to this other way have you read the book alcohol lied to me 
No. Oh, that's an incredible book. We read that at the start of our sobriety journey or maybe just before. It was really interesting and about the marketing. You think that you can't have an experience without it and that's the problem. Like that's part of the problem too. It's just everywhere. It's so deeply interwoven, you know, and everything. The mind is taking in impressions of everything all the time. Mm. Like think about this mass saturation of alcohol advertising mm. in all of these different stories and all of these different flashes in which it's presented to us and then it's mass saturation across the society. So not as a singular entity are we coming to this conclusion we're coming to this as part of a society in australia that says this is what we do Mm. this is your great coming of age this is you at 18 here's your driver's license and you can drink you know two things that obviously shouldn't go together at all anyway so how do we de-ritualize that idea because Mm. that's what it's become and we create a new ritual forwards that celebrates this coming of age. Like we just don't have any of those things in our society that celebrates mm. us growing through our teen years. So we look for these false benchmarks, like I can drink alcohol now. Yeah, it's, yeah, 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 absolutely. I remember when my daughter was about 13, it was so bizarre. She turned, because by that stage we moved out of Sydney and I was working remotely for uh, the ABC making this producer series. And I had to go down to Sydney once a fortnight for about four or five days. And of course, when I went to Sydney, I was still drinking every day at home, but it was, you know, the wines over making dinner. So mm. the sophisticated drinking. <laughs> and, uh, and then I left all of the unsophisticated drinking to when I went to Sydney and I wasn't, you know, near the kids. And I remember my 13-year-old Jazzy at that time saying, one day just saying, my God, you are so conservative. And uh. I was like, I what what this this was the most outrageous remark to me and I but I realized I'd kind of really separated my life by that stage and also how I'd lied to her a lot along the way getting back to that Pharrell Williams reference from before that that day we were on a cruise and I was interviewing Pharrell there was quite a few of us all music industry friends and colleagues on this cruise on Sydney Harbour and um, so it was pretty fun it was pretty exciting had to interview Pharrell in one of the bedrooms and, you know, beneath this mirrored ceiling. It was all very (laughs) weird and surreal. And it was all free drinks as always. And that's, I think, where the music industry does have a differentiation from other industries in, in that the alcohol flows freely because the alcohol also is the revenue that's made for venues and whatnot. So it all goes hand in hand. There's a there's a commerce there that exists in that and it's all part of that attitude. Mm. And so the the bubbles were flowing freely and then it was time to come off the boat. And I got a ride with a friend of mine, Nathan, who was the host of MTV at the time. He was giving me a ride back to Bondi where I lived then. And of course, we stopped at the pub on the way home, even though we'd just drunk copious amounts of champagne, but not wanting to wanting it to end, mm. which is always that horrifically dangerous place of less like, I feel so good right now. I'm having such a good time. I'm so liberated. It's just amazing. So let's maintain that. But of course, there's no plateau. Mm. It's only like the peak of the mountain and then there's plummeting free fall <laughs> to the porcelain. It's only, you just have that one mouthful too many. Yeah. And then it's almost like, no, 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 no. You feel everything start to spin and there's no going back there. Anyway, so we were in that in-between state of like, let's keep this going. Stopped at the pub on the way home. We were playing pool and by then we'd gone on to beer. And going from champagne to beer is, you know, not recommended Mm. uh, for anybody. So I was about 
maybe halfway through my second beer and we were playing pool and I had that moment where you take that mouthful and you realize that's the one mouthful too many mm-hmm. and I'm out. So I go to the toilet and realize that I'm going to spew. I have to I have to vomit. So I'm in the toilet vomiting for I don't even know how long, but long enough for when I came out, Nathan, to go, I was really worried. I, I was just about to come in and get you. So I was obviously vomiting for a while. And I just said, look, we've got to go. I've got to get home. I was only about 10 minutes from home. So thank God. Thank, for that. thank God for that. We got in the car, which was his, I remember it's his dad's really fancy gold car that was all gold interior. And it was like the cleanest car I'd ever been in. And I'm throwing up out the window of his dad's car. And in between vomits, you know, that little moment of reprieve, I managed to get out of the car once I got to my house, get to the front door. I heard my daughter then who would have been 12 running down the hallway because mummy was home after work, opening the door and I just fell in, like just fell down. And I was still conscious and her saying, mum, mum, what's wrong? And me just saying, oh, honey, I've just had a really big day at work. I'm so tired. I'm just going to sleep right here. (laughs) This is the best place for me to sleep right now. And like her just going, okay, radio, bit weird, but mum's really tired. She's having a, a sleep there. So in every way, kind of trying to block this knowledge of the drinking and the alcohol mm. to the point where when she's 13, a year later, her saying to me, you're so conservative. But I was also kind of manifesting this weird lie about the dangers of alcohol because she would have seen it a thousand times and never have known because I was mm. hiding this story. Mm. Mm. And so I think it's good in some ways that there's some impression that they have of how, of, of for children of how it looks. I know myself growing up with my mum had addiction problems. She was prescription drug taker, um, but also she would drink on top of that, which would just exacerbate all that as well. I was fairly sheltered from that, but I've got some very vivid times in my mind. It was well before I was 10 of her unresponsive or, you know, um, falling into the pool, people having to pick her up out of the swimming pool, things like that. And I was sometimes scared to be left alone with her, which probably this would be hard for her to hear right now. I know that growing up with a, a parent that you don't quite know what you're going to get sometimes can make you feeling, it leaves you feeling quite insecure Yeah. as a, as a kid and even carrying that on into your adult life. But there's definitely insecurities that Ash and I were talking about this morning about how, what effect that has and just so grateful that the kids don't have to see that. And the language I think that they develop inside themselves, if a child is in a negative space, obviously, you know, getting boozy never really benefits the child in the parenting space. Um, But if it's really quite a negative or a dangerous or an uncertain space, um, that inner dialogue within themselves, if they know that the parent's drinking and not understanding the incredible grip of addiction and the child wondering why they're not worth more than the alcohol, Because when you're a little child, how do you understand that space? Yeah. And so then you have to remove that outside of you and and come to a story perhaps where, well, it's because it's what adults do. Adults do drink. So the mm. child isn't wearing the insecurity of why the parent chooses to drink and mm. get fucked up. 
um, and leave and not understand that the child's in a dangerous situation or feels fearful, mm. you know, for the child then not to believe that it's them, they have to make it about that this is just what adults do potentially. Mm. Yeah, it's so – it's one of those things where, you know, when you're doing something and even if you entertain the idea of giving up, you think you'll never be one of those people who – sort of champions the other, that champions the other way. Mm. Like when I, you know, gave up smoking, that I would never have a problem with people smoking around me or if if with alcohol I'll never think anything negative about alcohol. It's just that this is the path that I'm on. Mm. Then, of course, as time goes on, a new change and you're standing on new territory, on new ground all the time and you're looking back and you're also looking out and you're seeing so much of the violence and so much of the discrimination and so much of the damage that's being done that may potentially otherwise be contained mm. if the fuel of alcohol wasn't added to that fire. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Because there's some situations that I've seen transpire because of alcohol that you know, I know damn well that some of those things that have happened that people would not have necessarily gone there if they'd have been sober. And I'm talking about stuff that ruins lives, like, you know, really big things that yeah. there's no way that, that that would happen. Yeah, it's it's so damaging when it's got to that point, you know. Or like you say, like even with the, the drug taking, the alcohol and the drug taking and, and ODing, like how close were you to not your kids not having a mum? This was the thing. This was... I still remember it so strongly because my the conversation that was happening in my head is that I'm going to die of a drug overdose. Mm. My daughter would have been maybe nine, I think then. I'm going to die of a drug overdose and that's going to be my daughter's story forevermore. Not the fact that I was a Triple J presenter, not that I had created like a version not that I'd made all of these documentary series, not that I was a writer, not that I was a, a beautiful mum who loved her very much. None of that. Mm. My mum died of a drug overdose mm. and that I would always be that and that would be her story. I have never been so scared as I was on that particular occasion. Yeah. So that was the last, apart from the most un-Tuesday of Tuesdays, which came years later, which was one of those one rememberings of this is why you don't walk that path. Mm. And clearly I needed one more final remembering many years after for that. Again, time passed as well and things things become diluted in your memory. Yeah. You know, even though I can still remember how frightened I was then and it does become a bit dangerous because things do dilute. But now for me, I just, I can't even conceive of, I can't even, like it's almost like I am, it still feels like me, I guess, because I'm still, I think I'm still the same trash bag inside. Oh, but the sure. trash bag is not related to the alcohol. It's just related to my personality. <laughs> but I think it gives, it gives you, it does give, like as much as, you know, you don't want to regret anything because it gets you to where you are and it gets you onto the path that, you, that you're walking now. But I always say, because I've gone, when I went and lived in Bali and I'd go to try and find a different, because you've been my yoga teacher for a long time, got me into, I couldn't even touch my toes before I started coming to you. Um, 
But I remember going to Bali and these sort of like hot, young, I mean, you're hot, but young, hot, and you're young. <laughs> Thanks but, for that addition. You know what I mean? Like these sort of very clean, puritanical yoga teachers there. And I'm like, come on, like give me someone covered in tats that's had an intravenous drug issue, that's borderline alcoholic, <laughs> in recovery, or I'm out. <laughs> You've set the bar for me for how I want my yoga teachers to be. It's funny that, isn't it? Because, and I say this to teachers who come and teach for us as well or teachers who are seeking guidance or training from us, that when you've experienced yoga like really actually saving your ass, then you are so deeply connected. You you are forever more deeply connected. I mean, my yoga practice, I might not be a yoga teacher per se forevermore, but all of that will be the framework absolutely behind every single action of my whole life. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Because in every single action, in every single moment, there's something within that framework of yoga as a framework for living that helps me to navigate the next step forwards. And I think that's for the most part for people this life is just fucking terrifying. Like people are so scared. Mm. There's just crazy shit going on all the time. And alcohol helps us to not feel afraid. Mm. And I, I would say that I would, actually, I would actually, momentarily, I would actually say that that would be the number one reason behind the maintenance of consistent alcohol consumption is being afraid. Whatever that looks like. Mm. It might be being uh, like afraid of small things in your life. It's insecurity. That's fear as well or fear of um, judgment from others. Or it might be that, you know, genuine and valid fear of the big things that are happening around the world. And we, so we need to, as a society and as communities, local communities, the fear is what we need to tackle to really help each other to not be so afraid. And then we might have a chance, a genuine chance of dismantling this enormous alcohol problem that exists, not just in this country, but all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say for someone that was wanting to maybe not necessarily go down the yogic path, but even though that's a great one, but just someone who's who's a bit of a trash bag and that just is surrounded by it, um, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to, you know, Give it a rest or give it up. I think start to really look at all aspects of your life, almost like with this like reverential curiosity, mm. like every aspect and make every aspect of your life a hobby. What you eat, your interactions that you have with people, the decisions that you make for your own body, the music that you listen to, the books that you read, the movies that you watch. How can you, your consumption mm. in all of these really beautiful ways, how can you elevate the beauty, even just slightly, of all of the aspects of your life? Mm. Because generally a big, a big issue like being interwoven with binge drinking, which is a pattern in itself, even though there's breaks between, or consistent drinking is propped up by a thousand subtleties. So we've ended up constructing our whole life to kind of support that thing. Mm. So look at all of the subtleties across your whole life and just work on one of those subtleties and then one of those subtleties and one of those subtleties. Move one of those subtleties out of the way. Change or shift that one for the better. Elevate that one. How Mm. can I make that more beautiful? So you make the entirety of all of the other things in your life like a hobby, Mm. this beautiful curiosity 
and how you can beautify every small action in your life, action Mm. by action. Mm. And genuinely, if you shift all of those subtleties, the big things just fall down. So don't focus on removing the alcohol. Focus on how you beautify everything else. Oh, that's so great. Yes. So if someone's consuming a lot of alcohol, the alcohol is obviously a a toxic, it's it's a poison. But by putting it into our mouth over and over and over again, the message that we're sending the body is, this is what we put into our body. This is what we have to live with. This is part of our life. So the body and its survival brilliance, it has to support that because otherwise you'll die. Mm. You're poisoning yourself all the time. So the organs will wire themselves to support that. That's how Ozzy Osbourne can remain alive, <laughs> which is absolutely insane. Have you parted with him? I don't think I've ever met Ozzy Osbourne. No, I haven't. I never have, actually. I wonder why that is. I don't think I've ever even toured with him before. It probably would have been bad news for each other. Yeah, but maybe he would have been like good inspiration to go, oh, I do not want to end up there. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, so, go back. So the body is, is getting these messages. Alcohol is going in and in and in repetitively. So the body goes, right, this is part of our intake. This is actually part of the life. So we need to wire all of our function to support that. So liver function will change, kidney function will change, digestive function will change to support the constant intake of poison. Mm. So if we just suddenly remove that, the body is still wired in that way. So the body will be in turmoil, almost like a drought. Like where is this thing? We've wired our body to exist in this way to support that. Sudden removal can be very, very challenging. Plus all of the psychological wiring that's around yeah. that. Yeah, and I think that depends on how much people are drinking. Like my friend Lyndall, who I had on the podcast a few episodes ago, she had to be hospitalised to deal with the withdrawal effects of alcohol, which is exactly yeah. like what you're saying. Um, yeah. But people, it's happening even at a low level. If the, if the uh, intake is consistent, even if it's low level, the body still has to support the intake of that. So there's some wiring already that's going in that direction. Mm. And it's like the body, if we're taking in some people who live in areas of high air pollution, their bodies have to learn to function with that in a better way. Of course, some people still end up in disease from that. But the body has to try and process that because that's the reality of that individual. So even a low-level consistent intake will rewire the organs and the function to some degree. Mm. So we have to allow that process to come back slowly, slowly, slowly. So the best way to do that is we're going to work on this thing that's over here. Yep. Then that slowly, you just let the alcohol happen. You just let it happen. But over time, the psychology will change as well as the rewiring of the body will happen until without any aggression without any force it just falls away of course it takes a lot of diligence by the individual so it's something like yoga therapy which means you have to do you know your practice is every day not have to but it's the ideal Mm. if you practice every single day with good diligence absolutely you will come out Mm. and i know this because i've seen it again and again and again and again yeah the the number one thing is consistency so someone just has to be consistent the focus of the practice is actually to something else the focus of the practice is not to get you off alcohol, even though, of course, it is. Mm. But that's not the known focus. The known focus is something over here. Okay, we're going to work on building up the strength of your shoulders or the flexibility of your low back. Oh, you've got some headaches. Okay, we're going to remove those. We focus on all of these other things. And as the person practices daily with diligence and consistency, their whole body changes. So the cravings, the desire for that over there, the alcohol or whatever else it is, bad food, drugs, 
people who are addicted to sex, any of those things starts to go down and down and down and down. Mm, So true. I'm going to put links to all your information on the um, podcast notes. Before you go, if you were to give your, let's say your 18-year-old self, if you could sit with her and just talk to her and give her advice, what would you say? Oh, I just want to cry thinking about her. You know when you're talking to 18-year-old self that she probably wouldn't listen to anything that a 45-year-old woman had to say. (laughs) But I would tell her that she was not all the things that she'd been led to believe, that Mm. she was enough. She Mm. wasn't less than, that she was amazing and she was precious. Mm. And and now I'm going to cry. I always cry when I'm so often I cry these days. That she was capable of brilliance and destined for brilliance. Mm. Yeah. Because I think in that is the void that needs to be filled for most young people to avoid alcohol pouring in there. Yeah. Would you change anything now? Would you change that the course of your life? There's so many great things that came along the way. Mm. And obviously all of the sufferings also were part of the path. Mm. I definitely wish that I could be the mum that I am now Mm. to my two boys and to my eldest daughter. But I wish I could go back and be the mum that I am now to my daughter when she was little. Mm. I wish I could give her sober mum for all of her life. Well, that was awesome. Thank you so much (laughs) for coming in and just for being so open and honest. Oh, one more question. If Jack Black called you tomorrow and said, Mal Babden, (laughs) I want to party with you, would you? No way. I would say, Jack Black, do you want to come and have a chai (laughs) with me in Brunswick Heads? Not creepy, in a totally not creepy way. Not creepy, just chai. (laughs) Thanks, darling. I love you so much. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.